After three weeks and several dozen films, the New York Film Festival is drawn to a close. We gathered a panel of critics last Friday night to discuss the films that captivated us and a few that underwhelmed. The panel was presented by HBO as part of the NYFF Free Talk series and included Museum of the Moving Image associate curator Eric Hines on Olivier Asias's new direction, Metrograph programmer Eliza Ma on The Human Surge, Ringer columnist Kay Austin Collins on Moonlight, Film Comet columnist Margaret Barton Fumo on talking to Verhoeven before and after shooting L, and myself. The talk was moderated by Film Comet editor-in-chief Nicholas Rapold. So uh, everyone has been busily enjoying uh, the films of the festival, so I, I guess just want to start off with a general question about what film did you see at the festival that sort of surprised you, took it by surprise, you know, either was not what you were expecting from a particular director or maybe revealed something new about an actor or reinvented cinema? Lisa, why don't you Well, okay, so the first two I really immediately loved, and they're The Human Surge by Teddy Williams and Certain Women by Kelly Reichert. And one film that I was kind of ambivalent upon first watch and then kind of totally done a 180 on is uh, The Ornithologist. Well, I think The Human Surge is an interesting one to start with. That's in the projection series. I mean, that's a movie that is constantly surprising you. It's really, you don't know what's around the corner. Um, and I don't know if you want to talk a bit about what struck you about it. It just thrusts you right into a very liminal scene um, in the middle of a sort of flood uh, and, well, it's in sort of like three very languid parts, and they're all shot in different formats. Um, the first one is Super 16, second one is, I think, Black Magic Camera, and then uh, projected onto a screen and then shot on Super 16 again. Uh, and then the last part, I think, is the Red Cam. And it kind of takes you on this completely unexpected journey there's sort of like a potpourri of different techniques that he's trying out. And to sort of list them all out, you wouldn't think that they would work together, but some kind of alchemy happens when they're combined into this film that really sort of I found transcendent. Anyone else see The Human Surge? Well, you did, right? Yeah, maybe you want to describe a bit about it sort of follows young people across the globe. The Camboys? Well, it's, it's, it's one of these films where I feel like when you describe it, when we like, like when we spend too much time talking about what happens in it, it almost does a disservice to what it's like to watch it. Yes. It's, it's, it's like this year's Kylie Blues. If you if anybody saw Kylie Blues last year, it wasn't in the yeah. festival, but um, it, it was also a first-time film, also very formally audacious in different parts and um, very dreamlike in the same way. Well, I mean, I think in terms of its narrative and its construction, it's very avant-garde, but it also is so engrossing. Like every second you're watching, you don't know what you're watching. So it just feels like, and the camera's often moving and you're often trailing behind people and you don't know where they're going. Um, you even don't, and because it's in these three parts, when a new section starts, you actually don't know necessarily that the new section has even begun. It's actually quite elegant the way that you go from one section to the other. Mm -hmm. And you're often trailing behind, like I, I was saying, you're trailing behind people. And so the film itself seems to be becoming itself before your eyes rather than which I think is what it may sound like when it sounds like it's three parts, 
rather than this this design this well designed structured thing that is going to hit these marks. It doesn't play that way at all. It just feels like you know it's becoming itself. Because I would say one of the worst most abused shots in all of cinema is watching someone from behind the just following shot. Following yeah, yeah. Shot, yeah. It's so it's, not subjective, not objective. Yeah, sort of yeah. The dark so, Dardenne following shot. Right. Within or the past, like, ten years, though. Or yeah, yeah it's exactly. It's hot. Yeah. But this is, like, I, would, I wouldn't even say that it's, like, avant-garde. It's almost, like, cognitive in the way that it's structured because it, what it's really replicating is the experience of just browsing online. And that's why you're kind of, like, always wrapped up because you don't want to, like log off you're just always just sort of like okay well i'm here i'm clicking on this i'm going over here like it's so i i don't know i think it's like fascinating for reproducing that experience in a really subtle and not terrible way you know it's not like text on the screen or anything but yeah i think i read an interview where he said he was trying to explore nature as a technology yeah yeah, I, I love that he wasn't afraid to underexpose mm -hmm. so much of the film. It takes on a beautiful texture. And just the other film you mentioned is another film, Certain Women, that uh, kind of restarts as well, but for a very different reason. It's three stories. Uh, um, this is a Kelly Reichardt movie, um, and, and each of them kind of focused on a star or two, and each of them really having the feel of a short story, as much as that can be transferred to film. I, I don't know if anyone was a particular fan of certain women who might want Huge to. Fan. If you aren't, get off the stage. <laughs> <laughs> Die. <laughs> I mean, it's so good. I mean, it's so good. It's like, a, I wrote, it's I wrote, aggressive, aggressive, by the throat <laughs> criticism. Come on, this is Friday night. We got to keep Stakes it. Stakes are high. This is live. This is live theater. It's true. It's, it's being broadcast. It's like, this is a coliseum <laughs> of criticism. It's written, yeah. But no, it, I, like, I wrote this, like, I had to write, like, we did Critics' Choice for the September October issue, and I had to write like a little line about it, and I don't think I could summarize it better than I did then, where it was like, this is a perfect showcase for each actress's talents. And then also like, Lily Gladstone is wonderful with the, in the Kristen Stewart short section, so it's just like, I don't know, each actress gets her due. Like you already knew that they were wonderful actresses in here, it's just like, right in front of you. Laura Dern, Michelle Williams, Kristen Stewart, Lily Gladstone. Are certain women. Yes. <laughs> James LaGrosse. <laughs> and James LaGrosse. Um, also shot on 16 millimeter. Yes. Right? By the same DP who did Meeks Cut Off and one other Kelly Record film, Can't Call. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, that's a, the, the, the attention to color uh, is something that was actually highlighted in our current issue of Film Comment. Uh, Kelly Reichardt. Uh, kindly contributed her thoughts about how she arrived at some of the color schemes and composition ideas in uh, certain women. And she was inspired by paintings and by photography. And um, so it's really a movie where, you know, each episode is relatively short in the grand scheme of things, but you, you can, there's just such subtlety in the gradations of color, the particular type of mustard or brown or, or all, all of that. Yeah, uh, produced by Todd Haynes again, who's a huge champion of film. Yes. Celluloid. Yeah, there, there's certain parts in the film that are so silent, but so multi-layered and meaningful. I always think about the scene of uh, Kristen Stewart and the newcomer, 
Oh, Lily Gladstone. Yes, yeah. Lily Gladstone. In the uh, incredible diner that they go to, yes. and right. they exchange these like almost Brisonian glances at each other, and she's Kristen Stewart's like stuffing her face, and, yeah, and Lily Gladstone's just watching her. Yeah, it's great. It's a great movie for observation, yeah. and, and a great movie that the, uh, the actresses let you observe. They, they give you that moment. So Kristen Stewart is happily, she picks up, you know how the napkin always is wrapped around the silverware? She picks up the whole thing to wipe her face. <laughs> Um, and that's a great moment. <laughs> a great moment in stardom is Kristen Stewart wiping her face with wrapped up silverware. Um, any other surprises? Uh, I, I was surprised by 13th. I was surprised, first of all, by an energetic talking head documentary. Um, yes. A form that I'm, you know, particularly right now in the midst of uh, there being such a surge of uh, experimental and interesting documentaries, uh, forms of documentary. I was taken aback by a, a more or less talking head picture that just uh, lit a fire under my ass somehow. Um, and I was surprised by the extent to which she really made us eventually start to think about her use of the images, her use of the archive of black subjection, uh, I guess, in a way. Um, I was surprised by her ability to, Ava DuVernay's ability to give us such a thorough uh, primer on the material. I, the, the stuff that I kind of knew, but there were things that I didn't know, and there's frankly something to seeing them play out in the way that, for example, she has the sort of the snippets of Trump's speech against kind of the older footage of um, blacks at rallies getting beaten up, et cetera. Um, you know, it's the kind of thing that you are not surprised by because it's something that I at least immediately think of when I hear um, certain rhetoric in, in contemporary in, in this election cycle, but to see it the way that she makes us see it um, at the moment that she makes us see it in the documentary, things like that, I think I was just surprised by. I mean, I, I saw that the same day that I saw Manchester by the Sea, so it was very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I cried a lot that day, <laughs> um, frankly. Great planning. Yeah. That's, that's a lot, lot to take, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, it's interesting you mentioned about the, the use of the Trump clips, uh, or rather the Trump audio clips, which are played over you know, period footage from the 60s and, I guess, uh, civil rights movement. Um, because it, it, I, I you know, saw I Am Not Your Negro, which also does similar kind of juxtaposition of, of, of footage. So the two of the movies together, um, you know, they have a way of making the history come alive, which makes it sound like a cliche, but um, also just brings all these words home. Um, you know, James Baldwin's. You know, his writings are matched so beautifully with, with footage in that. There's this moment where James Baldwin is on, what's that guy's name? That's the, the talk show guy? Oh, Dick, uh, Dick Cavett. Dick Cavett, yes. Dick Cavett. He's on the Dick Cavett show and they bring out like the All Lives Matter guy and James Baldwin <laughs> gives him this amazing look. Like really? And he's like, he's like from Yale and he, he says anything that like your racist cousin's coworker would post on Facebook about how all lives matter and James Baldwin just like destroys him and it's wonderful to see but it's also like you say it's like sad because it's you know nothing everything has changed and nothing has changed yeah it's, you feel frozen in time and that's also accentuated by seeing you know the footage then and, and yet yeah, in 13th seeing yeah. the footage then and having the clips over it that could be narrating clips of people being beaten uh, so yeah. yeah it's pretty awful Eric, thoughts? Uh, on these or others? 
Any selections? Um, well, I mean, I guess uh, I'm, I'm thinking about it because I'm going to see it again tonight, but uh, I'm thinking about a lot about L, which I don't think has played, I think it played press screening wise this morning and is playing throughout the weekend. Is that right? Or has it played? I think that's week? right, yeah. yeah. It's at the end um, of the which is the first thing I thought of when you said films that took you by surprise, because though I've, I, I do like Paul Verhoeven's work, um, there is a sense of, I have a sense of what I'm looking for from the films, and this film was actually quite different than I expected it to be in the sense that though it is a work of provocation and it is a, is a it's such a Paul Verhoeven film in terms of what it's about um, and its themes, I actually find it pretty nuanced psychologically, and it's sort of, a it's a new territory for me, for him. As far as I'm concerned, new territory for him in that I think he's actually really interested in what goes on inside the, like, the minds and the impulses of the people that, he's, that are in the film rather than they're representing something or that he's, he's using characters to get at something, which I, I'm normally totally fine with considering what, his, 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 uh, what he's going for. But with this film, I, I just found him it just felt like the whole, the whole movie, he's actually trying to understand his people, even when they're doing horrible things to each other. Um, it's not about rubbing their horrible things in our faces. It's about trying to understand why people do what they do. Yeah. What would be your capsule description on it? If you... <laughs> no, I mean that, but I mean that almost as an exercise, you know? Like, 25 you words. Just, I'd rather not do that exercise. Um. <laughs> we can skip. We can skip to squats. Uh, Jumping jacks. Uh, so Isabella Pair. Play and it starts sounding absurd. I mean, Isabel Pair plays but a. That's what I mean. It's so much a more. A video game mogul uh, who is uh, sexually assaulted in the first part of the film, and uh, she proceeds with her life, um, and uh, at, she continues to be haunted by uh, the person, seemingly haunted by the person who assaulted her. And so, though she's trying to move on with her life, this keeps coming back to her. And over time, you start understanding things about her backstory, her history. Um, and uh, there's sort of the mystery of who did this as well as the mystery of who she is. I don't think that's nice adequate. <laughs> yeah, that's impressive. That's why we get the professionals. <laughs> so, but I don't know if anybody else, who else has seen it or what else people think, but that's... I think someone else has seen it. You have. Yeah, I've seen it twice. What is just gonna sit there? Fine. I just, I still don't quite know what to do with it, really. I mean, I've seen all of Verhoeven's films a few times over now, and I'm still a little bit befuddled by this one, although I did like it a lot. Um, but in particular, the scene, I would say the scene in the basement um, is the one that I have a little bit of trouble grappling with. That's the key point in the film where there becomes a question of eroticizing, not necessarily eroticizing rape, but eroticizing a rapist, which is just a tough pill to swallow. And um, I don't know, I'm still thinking about it, so that's why I didn't jump right into the conversation. But. And, and Margaret, you actually interviewed Paul Verhoeven ahead of, I guess he had finished Elle? Yeah, before and after. I, I interviewed him the day before he went to go shoot Elle or the day before he went to Paris to begin work on Elle, and then I interviewed him as he was editing it. Um, and it was interesting because at the time, there was, first there was a little blast in variety about what the film is, and then the critical response to that started flooding in with only the bare essentials of what the film was supposedly about, going on the sort of one-line description of an untranslated French novel. And so people immediately kind of jumped to the conclusion that he was doing a rape revenge film. 
you know, considering it's Verhoeven. He's directed all these erotic thrillers, and it's about a woman who was raped and her rapist. But, um, so I questioned him about that almost immediately. He shot it down. Um, and then today, I guess, he, he brought that up in, um, after the, during the press conference about how one of the reasons why he felt like he could never make it in America is that in America, they would, the producers and whoever would automatically push it into that sort of narrative. And he didn't want to do that. He wanted to make more of an interior piece about what is going on behind the psychology of these characters. Well, isn't the story too that he had it, there was an English language script made and he tried to get the film made in the US and it just wasn't, there didn't happen. Didn't happen. No, didn't yeah. happen. And then, but then bringing it back into French and trying again, it just started happening. Yeah, <laughs> which no. is very interesting. Yeah, Isabella Huppert was interested in it even before he, even before he came to the project. So I'm, I, mean, I mean, I don't think we shouldn't be giving away things about the film, but I feel like that scene is representative of a, of what he's capable of, and I think that is why he's such a he's worth taking on. He's worth taking seriously as a filmmaker but also worth questioning as a filmmaker because he's not, you're not in good hands with him necessarily. You know, you're not, he's not gonna take care of you in a scene like that. He's going to push it too far and make you question the fact that you've been pushed too far and try to get something out of the scene and from the characters, which I think can be productive as an, art, as an artistic impulse, but as a viewer, you're not necessarily being cared for. And that can be a tough thing. I mean, that, that's a really interesting idea, the idea of they're filmmakers who you, you know you're apprehensive about, but that's actually also something that's exciting about them because it's unpredictable. I mean, uh, were there any other films in the festival that sort of you, you felt that something like the death of Louis XIV was a little bit like that for, for me because uh, I mean it's an entirely different film <laughs> about the death of a monarch, um, and it's basically that's what you see is you know Jean Pierre Leo, you know in a bed. Um, and you know, entertaining various visitors, you know, bad doctors, um, and you don't really know where it's going to go. Or how, I mean, you know where it's going to go because it's in the title. Spoiler <laughs> alert! And uh, most history books as well. Um, uh, but you don't know how he's going to treat it. And you know, Albert Serra, the director. I hope this isn't too jarring a leap from from Al, but. Uh, Sex and death, it's fine. Sex and death, okay, right. Uh, but you don't know where he, necessarily where he's going to take it. Is it going to be like a durational thing? Um, is he just, you're just going to have to stare at someone decay or something? But uh, it's just a really, it's one of those being as performance things that just ends up surpassing almost anything the director is trying to do. And it just is very beautiful to watch. It looks like seeing a painting in motion to a certain extent. And funny to boot. Maybe one of the best final lines, I think, of any film in the festival. I'm going to dissent, though. Ah, I'm going to yes, say, I'm, I, I call bullshit on Albert Serra. I'm sorry. Because <laughs> it's like, I get the joke. I get the joke in the first five minutes, and then you have two hours of the joke. The joke is death, and the joke is on all of us. Exactly. I'm like, okay, like, it's funny that he's a big prima donna and that he wears these big wigs and just like you have to watch every single second of this you know like it's this it's just like I don't buy his project like I just I can't but I do buy segue yes <laughs> nice segue um, I do buy Mia Hansen Love's project which bringing back to Isabella Pear because that's just something where it's like 
it's you know it refu a lot, you know her films really refuse like narrative closure in a really interesting way and they are very earnest and there's just so much just so much in the way people move and like you know when she gets flowers from her you know she's separated from her husband and she he leaves her flowers just the way that she like tries to throw them out she gets they don't fit in the garbage she takes them down to the dumpster in a big ikea bag she throws them out she takes the ikea bag out because it's a nice bag and then she goes back up to her apartment like it's like little things like that it's like that's fascinating that's like actually doing something with these moments of life as opposed to like teehee you know the wrong person came when the king of france called for him in the middle of the night you know why don't you tell us what things to come is about oh i'm sorry well isabel pair plays a philosophy professor middle-aged and her mother is sort of crazy and um her husband just basically because their kids put uh like an ultimatum to him he leaves isabel pair she has to deal with her mother her mother dies uh, very suddenly and you know she's like her kids have grown up and left the house and so she's just sort of like free for the first time in her life and it's the wonderful and horrible aspects of being free at that age it was interesting to see because um, I watched both those films today one after the other how Hugh Pear responded in the two different characters to different traumatic events and showed the range of her acting ability, how in uh, Things to Come, there are several like really poignant scenes of her breaking down and crying on her own. Whereas in Elle, there are scenes where you would expect her to break down visibly and she doesn't. And um, it was just a great kind of day of admiring La Hubert. I think to come is it's, this happens with a lot of Hanson Love's uh, films for me, which is that I mean they have their own tempo and they have their own length, they have their own. It's realism, but it's also a very much a written yes. uh, exercise, and and she often puts the research on screen. Mm -hmm. So you have people like having philosophical conversations at length with each other in ways that may go beyond naturalism. And at times that can feel, at least for me, the first half of, of, of her film sometimes, I feel I'm fighting it a little bit because it's a bit awkward. But by the end, I think that really accumulates. Like to me, the I've learned the language. And then once I've learned the language, I can actually accept it emotionally. And so the second half of that film for me is incredibly moving. And it took me by surprise because I'm in this realm of people walking around and talking and the camera following them around and cut, 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 moving on. Oh, okay, okay I, I can't invest in this. I don't know where my way in is. And then, and then I'm in. Well, I was just it's very distinctive. I don't know, because I, I was just so from the opening shot where she get just getting a call in the middle of the night from her mother, and just how awful, like how clearly awful that situation is, and how sick of it she is, and then just like, and I mean, she explains, she iterates it when you know her mother after her mother dies, and she's talking to the priest, and she has to give like a laundry list of what her mother did in her life, and all of the sad things that she did and did not do. And throughout the film, it's just like this profound weight of being like a woman who did it all. And then like, so you do it all. Like you, you, you have the really wonderful career that makes your mother proud that you, you know, your kids love you. You do all this stuff, you do everything right. And then still things don't work out. And like dealing with that and like dealing, you know, having to put up with an aging, unwell, childish parent. Like it's so like, there are moments where you're not, you know, you. I, it brought me to tears sometimes. It wasn't. It wasn't anything like very didactic. It wasn't her like sort of jamming you in the ribs and telling you to cry. It was just like this is life. Like this is sad because this is life. But. Yeah, several instances of characters 
basically saying they're all right and they're not really all right, yeah. but not in that basic dramatic way of smiling on the outside and crying on the inside. It's more of those things can all exist at once. Like Hubert's character says, well, I'm intellectually satisfied, so I'm happy. And Hubert said in the press conference today that she totally believes that, her character believed that, but then, you know, there'll be another time in your life where something hits you and you're upset, whereas the mother is kind of over the top aggrandizing her pain a lot where she really knows that she's going to get through it and then the one time where she almost convincingly acts like nothing's wrong obviously something's wrong you'll have to watch the film but i mean a couple other movies come to mind with regard to things to come as a kind of study of you know life transitions i mean aquarius as well just has that kind of general feeling to me and really also personal shopper, uh, although it's, you know, it's, it's painting with genre, I think it's the way uh, Olivier Assize put it. Um, that too, like you're kind of watching someone grapple with uh, who they are and who they're putting forth to the world. And especially in that film, the kind of blurring between that and just a general feeling of being like a ghost in her own life. Thoughts? I'm still grappling with personal shopper. Um, in many ways, it is irresistible to me. Um, you know, case to irresistible. Um, painting with genre, ghosts that do that open mouth vomit thing that that ghost did, like that, like on Snapchat when it vomits rainbows. That's what that ghost did. But it was um, ectoplasm. Yeah, precisely. We're giving um, a lot of weight here, guys. We're giving a lot of weight. Here. Um, yeah, sorry. Um, They're all dead. And, and as always, after I finish um, an SF's film, I immediately want to watch it again. Um, you know, I'm eager to watch it again in a way that I'm not always eager to watch something that I know that I loved the first time. Um, for example, I, I didn't immediately want to watch Manchester by the Sea again. I didn't have it in me, um, frankly. But, but Personal Shopper, I, I'm still trying to figure out... Uh, Erica, I like your points about Me, Hands, and Love and... and trying to learn someone's language. I think I'm still trying to figure out his language. I always walk away admiring his formal skill, um, the questions that he has, but I also always walk away feeling like it was the appetizer for something meatier that I, that it made me want, but just didn't, didn't quite satisfy, which is a, a thing, which is legitimate, which is um, aesthetically something that I think is appropriate to do but usually in his case, it, it doesn't feel satisfyingly unsatisfied. It feels unsatisfying. Um, and I also, you know, I mean, on the subject of, of case two, um, felt her acting. This is, I mean, for the first time since, I don't know, Snow White and the Huntsman, which I have seen. Um, no I shame. Felt her, sorry, no, no shame at all, no shame frankly. Um, no, she's there, I'm there. But... Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to do with this movie quite yet. But again, I am eager to watch it again um, and just live in it, to live in that house, to live in those dark corridors, to ghost hunt, to ghost text, to all these things, um, to shop. But I just, I just don't, I don't quite know what to do. Yeah. But I, don't, I wonder if you guys... I, I mean, I, I love that. I love that. I, I love hearing you talk about it and, and question question it and question yourself about it. I mean, I, I adore it, um, but I am also, I'm an, I'm an easy uh, partner for us as. I mean, I tend to go where he goes or want to go where he's going. 
but I, I was excited by this because this felt like somebody, I mean, almost like the human surge in a sense. Like, like I, I, I feel like there's this, he's working it out in front of us almost. This is not a refined sensibility that's sort of reached, you know, like he's, he's not at a plateau with this film. I think he's actually going somewhere else right now. Like he, he found Kristen Stewart, he loved working her with the last time, now it's like, let's do something weird. And this is the sort of weird thing. And it feels like him, and it's shot like he shoots his films, but there are all these gambits in there that he's sort of like, that are just, it's different, you know? And I think that it's, I find it, I found it strangely emotional. Like the, I, I found really delivered somewhere emotional by, by this film and, that I didn't quite expect. And I also think that, you know, it's, it's gonna be talked about, and sure it has been talked about plenty, the fact that like a third of the film is, is her texting, which he's an amazing filmmaker, so he figured out how to make it cinematic. But I love the how it's cinematic because it's, I can't stop thinking about it because it's a film that you're in two places at once. You're watching Kristen Stewart, who's an amazing, obviously an amazing looking person, um, in these incredible locations on a train, you know, in a city, like shopping, like doing all these incredible visual things but you're barely paying attention to, to it because you're just looking to see what shows up on her phone. And that just seems so incredibly important about like how we all live right now. We all live this way. And it's, it's you can call it, you can say, well, here's what a fascinating movie of the moment. But to me also just cinematically, I was so excited by the fact that I was actually just trained on whether or not her phone was gonna buzz and something was gonna show up on this tiny screen while watching this gorgeously shot scene. I mean, that, to me, that's just, I, I, I can't stop thinking about that. She texts a lot and trains uh, in Sils Maria, too. She yes. does indeed text a lot in Sils Maria, yeah. Maybe that's her con contribution to the screenplay. She's like, he's more texting. Uh, but, but I mean, an another aspect of like the tech presence of technology in, in, in life, I mean, I love there's this one scene where she's watching a kind of documentary about modern art and spiritualists, and they, they shot it so that the, the self, this, the, the um, I sound like an old man. <laughs> Too uh, late. <laughs> the iPhone is on the table, so you just have it, and you see the movie playing, but it's, it just looks like this puddle of movie that's just on the table. <laughs> and, and it's just something that's so familiar. Everyone watches stuff on their phones, as I, so I hear. Uh, <laughs> and, but it, he makes it seem uncanny. You kind of realize, wow, that's, that's kind of a form of magic. There's that old like, Isaac Asimov line about, you know, it's him, right? The, the technology looks like magic if you don't know it. I'm probably wrong. Fill in the right name. <laughs> Correct and post. Maybe it was Thomas Jefferson, I don't know. Um, but so that, I mean, that was, it was amazing to be struck with that. And that's just another thing, uh, you know, uh, say us taking something kind of casual, you know, I don't know, making you realize something about it. Mm -hmm. well, Violet, oh, Violet looked skeptical when I was alone. No, no, I'm all about it. I oh, mean, okay. it was, it, yeah, I mean, just echoing what you were saying, there are just so many times where, I mean, <laughs> it's funny, like, she's a personal shopper, as this title suggests, uh, for this very wealthy starlet who's sort of insufferable, and there's this, all the shots of the interior of this woman's apartment are lit like it's about to be the craziest tornado of all time. Like, it's like the sky, the color of the sky in every of all those shots that are so unreal. And then there's something happens, which I will not say what happens. And then there's even crazier light going on. So he's like, clearly like, he's just so, it was visually, again, it was just such a wonderful thing to see. And yes, um, you know, even if it means, I, th I mean, the one thing that was unrealistic to me was like the fact that Kristen Stewart has her like, the keyboard sound on, where it's like, tech, 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 tech. 
but it draws you in. Like if someone did that in people real life. People do. I, I, I've sat next Ugh. to people with the keyboard sound. Why? Please, of course. Ugh. <laughs> so annoying. The entire panel shudders inwardly. <laughs> <laughs> but and this has become a topic of discussion, that she puts a space between the last word and a question mark throughout the film. Rude. And apparently that's how she, Kristen Stewart, in real life texts. So Ooh. that's why it's in the movie. Not a weird app. She it's brought that to the role. Apparently. Interesting. Well, she did also... you read that in a fan magazine? How did she know that? <laughs> Eric is an avid subscriber to Film Comment and Tiger Beat. <laughs> I'm a journalist. <laughs> Ask questions. She also paints, right? She paints, I think. So that's another aspect yeah. of it, which I learned from research. <laughs> um, uh, Personal Shopper also kind of brings me to Aquarius, just another movie that's kind of showcasing where it's like a performance showcased by, by an actress. Very different, totally different. I don't know if anyone saw that. That actually opened today, so that's something you can run out and see as well. Did anyone uh, like Aquarius? Not, Aquarius? Not so particularly about Aquarius, but I was struck by, by how many films in the festival this year starred women over 40. I mean, it really was a lot. And uh, that one is a, is a great example, I guess, because she's in just about every scene. It's all about her, and she's uh, fantastic in it, Sonia Braga. Yeah, a great movie on the passage of time, also. Uh, which you could say the same about Moonlight, uh, that it's you know, a movie that does a totally bold thing, which you forget it's doing, uh, which is showing one character at three different ages with three different actors, which you know, in, in other other hands or you know other executions might have been a total disaster, you know. Um, but it's, it, I don't know. That's even that's just one facet of the film that has a ton of stuff going on. But that was something that moved me. That each actor, totally, in, you know, in, inside their heads. Well, I think I mentioned that to you before that I couldn't. I don't know why I couldn't help thinking when I was watching Moonlight of the film uh, Place Beyond the Pines, which was. <laughs> A few years ago, and how it's never good when somebody said the name of a movie and somebody in the panel just said, <laughs> Yeah, I think he's with me, but um, I can't wait to see where this Yeah, how Moonlight just like succeeded in every way that that film failed. I, I really, it just kept popping, it kept popping up in my head. I mean, just the, the scope of it, you know, the different generations of a person's life. The use of style in it, the sort of like very visible, profound style to it, and uh, the whole father-son thing that in *Place Beyond the Pines* is just so facile and, you know, grand, and it has all these like grand pretensions. Whereas in *Moonlight*, they just it worked. Each thing worked so well without being over the top or, you know, I think there are a lot of parallels if you really if you start. To th- once you get it in your head, you'll see there are a lot of parallels between those films and not favorable to the earlier one. I think the world wants a, a real, like a 7,000 word essay on that. <laughs> From you. Moonlight colon, not place beyond the <laughs> Team Moonlight. I mean, there's so many things about Moonlight that, as you're kind of alluding to, I think, that in another movie I would really hate. Um, you know, I would, I would really hate the dependence on um, archetypes of boyhood and gayhood and blackness kind of jumbled into one. Um, because I think so many other filmmakers and films would 
not find a way to render those things specifically in a way that I think Moonlight really um, does very beautifully. Um, with the exception for me of the mom, I'm still wrestling with, you know, that's, that's the one part of the movie that, though I, as I understand it, um, is relevant to Barry Jenkins personally and to the playwright Terrell Evan McCraney, still feels like it, it comes from outside, from some sense of uh, black life at that time, at that moment, that that's a thing that would be there, a person that would be there. Um, I struggle with that a little bit still, but but otherwise, I, I I was really, frankly, blown away by by its ability to invert uh, so many familiar, cinematically, for many people personally, probably, um, experiences, and just make them feel like they were being created from the ground up, from the inside out. Um, and the way that that film doesn't consummate itself in quite the way that I expect was also very beautiful to me. I kind of gasped when it was over, um, that it ended where it did. Um, that was fantastic. Um, it was also, you know, a, another movie where um, a lot of people were crying. You guys are really into that this year. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it, it's a movie that I, I'm still wrestling with because again, it, it, in so many ways on paper, um, shouldn't, shouldn't work for me, but the experience of it is so much richer than the description of it even is. No, it achieves like grandness out of very small things. Like, and that's, Absolutely. I think that's what makes it like spectacular filmmaking and not beyond the pines. <laughs> well, especially in the acting, I think in Moonlight, mm -hmm. there's so much nuance in the acting without, you know, much dialogue. Yeah. Like when she screams at him and there's only music, like that's just such like a, you feel the terror of like a small child in that moment and that's so like there, there are just so many things that like again like bad filmmaking does and this just like knocks out of the park and i would also just like to say that i would love to see mahershala ali in more films mm -hmm. yes um immediately mm -hmm. <laughs> right now tomorrow um, <laughs> agreed just i think he i mean I, I think you know it's beautifully acted all around but i think uh he in particular uh, not to give anything away for people who haven't seen it, but there's a moment at the end of the first segment of the film um, that is truly heartbreaking and remarkable to me, largely because of, because of him, because of what happens when the scene is kind of over. Yeah. Um, he's very special. Put him in things. He's in a lot of television, but I was, I was thrilled to see him in, the, in this film, and he was just wonderful. Absolutely. What about that Tony Erdman? Tony Erdman, I hear it's good. Good. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. That, 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 old, that old rag film comment, put it on the cover. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so Tony Erdman uh, is, this, is a very special experience and an even more special experience seeing it with an, a, a giant audience, I think, which it might be uh, a little different than, than like at a press screening or something. I mean, that's definitely, I think, I've heard from a couple of people that th those are almost two different animals feeling the people around you responding to, to a movie like that, uh, you know, to a two and a half hour long movie like that. I don't know. Eric, yeah, you're no, not. I'm curious about that, because I haven't seen it with a, in public. I saw it at a press screening with, you know, like seven other people, and I know every single person there, so like each of their laughs was registered in a weird evaluative way, you know? Um, you make it sound like the worst thing ever. <laughs> press screenings? Yeah, kind of it. So, but, but, uh, but I'm curious, like, how that played to an audience. I would love to hear an audience respond to that movie. You, you saw it with the audience, or? 
I, 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 well, I saw it at a, at a larger festival audience oh. in, at, at Cannes, and which, we, I guess, yeah, is different than a smaller press. I mean, people were very much, you know, breathing with it um, and, and, and laughing with it as if it was, I mean, it is a comedy, but, but, but as if, it, it, you know, it's something with punchlines or something. People were just so in tune with it, um, and it just all, all of it feels that much more cathartic when people are all together. And then there is a wonderful scene, you know, uh, another movie where you don't want to spoil it, but there's a wonderful scene where everyone just like spontaneously applauded, um, and that's another, you know, that's I found why that's scene why a you see. a little bit upsetting, movie. though. What's that? I actually found that scene a little bit oh, upsetting, really? because it's a scene of it's. I know it's comedic, and I was laughing at the other people in it a lot, but it's a scene of someone having a breakdown. <laughs> I mean, I hate to be like a stick in the mud, but. I just didn't I found it, it a little bit upsetting. Yeah. I didn't buy it. Like I don't think that she would break down in that way. I'm somebody who doesn't like to know anything about a movie before I go in it, which makes working at Film Comic really hard, especially when we're doing like a bunch of can coverage. So you see pictures and you're reading a bunch of stuff about these movies that you're not going to see for months. But everything in the film that was supposed to be surprising was had kind of been ruined because I had already seen like stills of it. And I'm like, okay, so now this thing is going to come here and this is going to come here. So it was it was like definitely I wasn't as blown away by it as I feel like most people have been. And like I said, I sort of, again, I want to dissent on that she would sort of like lose her mind like that because it's, it's like, you know, it's just not her and it's also kind of not her dad, but. I, uh, I bought that stuff, but I, I mean, I, I, <laughs> but I do think it's, a, it's interesting to think about you knowing things in advance because I sort of avoided as much as I possibly could things about it, but you hear at least general senses of what that film is. And I do think it's a film that can very easily, because the enthusiasm around it, misrepresent what it is. Yeah. Because um, to me, like it, it, it's writing its own rules, it's doing its own thing, it's timing itself out in its own way, um, it's sections off set pieces in a way that it, it just, it needs to do its work. And I think that uh, describing it or characterizing it or having your own emotional responses to it being thrown out there can, I think, alienate somebody yeah. because it's not necessarily how they're all going to see it. Totally. And I mean, I think probably if we're talking about, you know, the texting and personal shopper, like I think this really immerses you in the way that we live now in a really uncomfortable way. And I think it's good that people are, you know, you really are like alone at your computer getting mad at someone because they are inconvenient to you. Like just how she, you know, uh, she sort of sends her father away in a huff and like how annoyed she is and what a monster she sounds like describing why she kicked him out and like why he was bugging her. Like it's, it's like sad, but that's sort of like, that happened, that's so easy to fall into because everything around us encourages us to behave in this way and makes it easy for people to behave in this way. And a friend of mine said this to me and it's stuck with me where it's like, what makes the film unique is that instead of like a wild child kid it's a wild child dad so it's reversing that but so much of what that aspirational generation was trying to do the things that they were rebelling against and their sort of push for individualism set us up for the problems we have now and like they couldn't possibly foresee that and it was also you know they sort of destroyed the old world they didn't set up the right way for a new world to really go forward so like it's it's uh in that respect i think it's fascinating and like definitely worth seeing and wonderful and et cetera. You're referring to the failed counterculture yes. that swept, swept the world in the 60s. Yes, okay. the spirit of 68. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't, know, they didn't like, I don't know, put up the right scaffolding, so it's all falling down again. But 
Um, I wanted to give the audience a chance uh, to ask any questions. There's so many movies, obviously, that we could cover, so I don't know if anyone uh, has any comments or questions they'd like to. Yeah, it's a question for all of you, and it's about uh, Foca Mare, Fire at Sea. It's about the different sensitivity between European cinema and uh, American cinema. Because Gianfranco Ross is a terrific filmmaker, but it took uh, Venice and uh, Berlin before he got some kind of attention from you, and he's been working for years, the way he works by himself, with uh, the sound, he does the sound, he does the camera, he spent months uh, building a very intimate relationship with these characters, and he came out with this, for me, incredible, terrific movie, it's very important, very poetic, and, but I have a very, very Italian take on it, a very European, and I'm very curious what is your call on it, in terms of format, and in terms of all the editing in terms of the old piece. Well, I mean, I love that film. Um, yeah. And it's coming out in a couple of weeks here, and there's a retrospective of his films at BAM. So there's a bit of a moment for him, justly, uh, in New York, which I think is great. Um, I saw it in Toronto and watched it again here last weekend. Uh, I think it's an extraordinary film. I think it's an incredibly honest movie coming from uh, an artist coming from a specific place, too. He is a, he's a man who went to Lampedusa, spent time with people, as, you, as, as exactly how you described. And I love how his experience of the island and the people that he got to know become a part of the film, even though there's this incredible human rights disaster happening at the same place, which he also films as incredibly powerful what he shows. But he shows both of those things. And I think most other filmmakers would not be showing those two things. They think, oh no, the story's over here, we can't show this part too, this is not as important. As far as he's concerned, this is what's going on in this location. So it's, it gives an incredibly important sense of place that these two things could be going on and they're not actually, um, they're not uh, coming together really at all. These are two separate existences going on. And he represents that without having one half um, scolding the other. They just exist next to each other. Yeah. Um, he makes points about that and I think that there are moments where you're, you realize, oh, how do they not know this is happening or how do they not be thinking about this? But he's not, it's not, it's not condemning at all, like the, the lives of people who've lived there for centuries, mm -hmm. basically. Um, simultaneous to this, this, you know, the, the refugee crisis happening there. Yeah. I mean, I think that, like, that is, again, like you say, like, showing those two things that just exist without even touching each other some, most of the time, like, that's, that's the world we live in, and, like, you know, Mediterranean by Jonas Carpignano, it was a wonderful film, very different, because it really just dove in head first, and, you know, he, again, he made this wonderful film because he had spent so much time getting to know these people, I mean, I th and I think this is true of like a lot of Rossi's films where it's just like he gets at the cruelty of existence or just like, you know, I mean, it's, he's not saying, he's not necessarily, he's not saying these people are cruel because they're not like helping, but it's just like, these are two very different spheres. Yeah, but that, that's just what I really responded to because I, yeah. I just don't think any of the footage of the natives are meant to condemn at all. Absolutely what doing not. Or make them responsible. No. Um, because it's not their fault. But he rhymes, he rhymes things really, I mean, the second time through I was sort of astonished how often there are these moments when you're with the, the natives to, to, to Lampedusa and there are just these little glimmers of something to cast forward yeah. to something that you might see later on um, and vice versa. So mm. yeah, it's an extraordinary movie. I've loved him since Boatman. <laughs> so you're there first. It's a, it's a short that Jean-Franc Rossi did about um, a boat, a boatman who, uh, on the Gange, Ganges 
um, who take, you know, carries the dead. Um, so he's kind of had, I guess one of the things he's done is really depict things that aren't usually shown on screen or uh, you know, aspects and phases of life that you don't even get a glimpse of. Or Sicario, or with Sicario. the drawings. Sicario. <laughs> Where you literally can't. The, I love that movie. The Mexican uh, hitman. Terrifying. It's terrifying. Ter where, where the main subject of the film has a hood on for the entire film and does little drawings to illustrate his yeah. stories. And, and sometimes they're just like, I mean, what's great about that is like sometimes they're just like nervous. Like it's just like yeah. he's umming with his hand where he's just like, he, just, yeah. he unnecessarily shows like cut off a head like X. Yeah, it's like some <laughs> nightmare game of win, lose, or draw or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, a question from the audience? I've been really surprised uh, at how funny a lot of the movies have been at the festival this year, um, uh, so especially in films that would not on their surface apparently uh, appear to be comedies, uh, things like Death of Louis XIV and, um, uh, well, Tony Erdman is, is a comedy. Elf is what I was thinking of. Um, so I was just going to highlight two others and wonder if you've seen them, what you thought of uh, Son of Joseph and Hermia and Helena, uh, because I think those are also very funny films. No, I mean, I, I love Pinero's films. I love the, I, 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 this feels like, again, I love these moments in filmmakers where it's, clearly their work, it's clearly an extension of their project, and yet there's new things happening. Um, I love how it's structured. Um, I think it's incredibly delightful to watch, and it's hilarious, but it's also incredibly cruel. Um, like what these people are doing and saying to each other is incredibly cruel, but very funny for that as well. Like he actually take, I think he's really mining the humor in the sort of cruel ways that we deal with one another, particularly in relationships. So no, I mean, it's, it's, it's very, very clever, but also really, really funny. Like, laugh out loud funny at times. Um, and same as with Son of Joseph, which is just like, that's like if, I, I mean, I love all of Eugene Green's, or Eugene Green's films, but it's like, if he just made like a Hollywood movie, but imposed his aesthetics on it, and it's just like so kooky and funny, and like, I hate to, why did I say kooky? That's such a, <laughs> such a terrible word. Kooky, but it's like, kooky. Some things are kooky. Some things are kooky. It's, it's like super funny. and Because so much of what he does is like, it seems, it's seemingly like pushing you away, but his work to me is so accessible. And like what he's doing is so plain and like emotive and wonderful. And it's just like, you think it's going to be a really dry art house movie and it's just completely the opposite. So bravo, bravo, Eugene. I didn't see a lot of films this year, at the, but you spoke about seeing Ornithologist once and then seeing it again and having a very different reaction, how it opened to you. And for you, it was actually my first time seeing Juan Pedro Rodriguez's work, and it was interesting. Um, I don't quite know what to make of it, but it'd be interesting to, or I could say some things, but it'd be interesting to hear your take and anybody else about that film or his work in general. That's a weird film to start with uh, <laughs> in, his, in his career. I think that his other films, uh, the feature works, have been more narratively taught and uh, perhaps a little more uh, linear, whereas this is so, it's such an odyssey and it's, it takes such a surreal turn. And I think the reason why I was first not so on board with it is because so much of the symbolism is so like on the nose. And he plays with similar motifs, you know, sacred, religious, sacrilegious uh, motifs in his other works, but not as uh, overtly uh, as this. So it took me a while to kind of get past that. And then I, I, I realized that it, it actually bears a lot of affinities to like Pasolini's trilogy of life in that it just forges a very uh, personal connection between 
the mundane and the sacred. And, and he, you know, he is a trained ornithologist himself. So uh, I was really interested to see what he would do with that. It was completely beyond my expectations of what he would do with, with uh, a film about, ostensibly about ornithology. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not, some of it is not very subtle. Like there are, you know, references to Caravaggio painting that is, so it's like basically a tableau vivant of the painting and there's crazy cloth monster. Um, there's like, you know, um, someone gets peed on, or, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's, and then I, the one problem I had with it was the ending, the sort of uh, cutesy, you know, uh, contemporary update, and everyone, you know, maybe it was just a dream or something like this. I, I just didn't really, it didn't really work for me, but I loved everything else. I spoke earlier about moon, uh, Moonlight. I didn't see it, but using different characters and the passage of time through the film, I did see Julietta, and I thought it was very successful, um, the several characters that played. Any response? No one seems to. <laughs> <laughs> I get you. Stump the panel. Stump the panel. No, I've seen it. I, I agree. I mean, it's, it's, it's so. That's right. <laughs> Uh, it, I mean, it's so incredibly deft and, 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 and subtle in how it, 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 it um, travels through time. And, and, and um, I don't know, I, I don't have too much more eloquent to say than that. But um, yeah, definitely. Also, just as far as a, a Moldovar movies go, somewhat more of a low-key uh, one. I mean, if that makes sense, even though the production design and the costumes and the actors are all totally gorgeous, so it seems absurd to call it low-key. But I, I just, I, I loved it as a movie that at the end, I just felt like he decided he just would sort of close the book on the story, you know? It wasn't the sort of movie where he felt like he had to pile on incident or, or twist. It just wasn't that sort of um, melodrama for, for him. Um, and, and that, I just found that kind of uh, touching. Um, and it wasn't a movie where I had to be aware of how it was referencing Hitchcock or, or, or using similar like, visual vocabulary. Um, it just, it just felt it. And I guess you'll have to trust me because no one else is. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I guess we, we could wrap up or we can keep going. What does the audience say? <laughs> I see Patterson on your, oh, Patterson. On your notes. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Well, how about Patterson? <laughs> <laughs> we can close on Patterson. Close on Patterson. Yeah. Patterson. Patterson is a great movie to close on. Yeah. Just you know, it's a movie about art and life, which all of us like. <laughs> it was not as boring as you would think, maybe from the outset. It's a film about poetry. In fact, I mean, I was looking hey, forward to poetry sucks. alone. Yeah. Poetry gets a bad rap. I said from the outset, um, but I didn't find it boring, and I found it very easy to fall into the rhythm of it, and uh, I, I really liked it a lot. But I was thinking of that film at the when we first started off with the unexpected film yeah. prompt that that one didn't feel as as slow as you'd think it would. This is a ringing. Even as the writing is being written on Fantastic. the screen over a really, waterfall. Really, you guys all loved it. Oh, oh you didn't like Patterson? I no, no, no. I mean, I, I I was genuinely shocked by its earnestness. Oh, um, okay. 
and really like taken aback and then eventually disarmed by it. And I think I like it now, but it's really a bizarre film. Not what I expected at yeah. all. But I mean, it's a strange film because in some ways it kind of marries different concerns Jarmusch has had across his, his career a little bit. Like for me, it kind of fit in with the kind of obsession with cycles that he's had, like, you know, um, recently, especially with the limits of control, this idea of like reliving, reliving and, and of routine and the kind of, you know, the art of routine in a way. And, and this, this plugged me very directly into the poetry, uh, William Carlos Williams, that is, is in, uh, that is in the movie. Um, but earnestness, yes, so the earnestness made you unhappy. Not unhappy, no? okay. just it, it felt so out of time and yeah. out of, uh, uh, sync with, you know, like, I mean, for a film that's ostensibly about the passage of time and, and, and the rhythm of uh, lived reality, um, it just felt like such an artificial earnestness. I mean, but I don't think that's that was intended. I think that was, you know, that is truly uh, what he wanted to portray was the sincerity um, in, in art making, which is pretty rare today. And that, that's what disarmed me so much. That's poetry. I mean, <laughs> it really is. I mean, the, Jarmusch is often very artificial, you know? And, and I think that, uh, like, I'm just, I'm, I'm riffing here, but like, there's, there's an artificiality to his work. There can be an earnestness to his, to his work. And there's often an element of cool there. And, and this one is completely absent of cool, which yeah. is sort of like the, one of the motivating forces for his work. And I had kind of gotten very frustrated with that in the last several films. And I was just sort of exhilarated to see that that's just, not, oh no, oh, we're just gonna care about people and we're gonna get into their rhythms and they're gonna write poetry and, and they're gonna have their lives and they're gonna be nice to each other. It's just something, I, it's crazy how like nice everybody is to one another. And I love that. And, um, just because it is incredibly different. And, 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 but I just, um, you don't see that in, in films, but it's, it's, it's the lack of coolness to it that I found sort of exciting in terms of, of, of Jarmusch. Um, I would disagree with the lack of cool, though. I, I, relatively speaking, maybe there's a little bit, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But, but what, what, what I agree cool? with, with what you're saying about the uh, sweetness of it, totally, but, uh, well, literally just... Literally with the cupcakes. Yeah, yeah, literally with the cupcakes. But um, the dog was cool. That's not cool. <laughs> yes, he was. That is not was. cool. Yes, I'm talking about like, like, like his record collection being up on screen. I'm talking the, about like... The, the, just the way that people talk in his films, including this film, is not the way that people no, talk no, in true, real life. True. You know? Um, <laughs> but does that make it cool? Dog, it does make it cool. Dog movies are not cool. The bar was cool. His lunchbox was, cool. was cool. The bar looked like it was—it was like Charlie Bunker's plate. <laughs> That's pretty cool. That's cool. It was like that. <laughs> I don't know that I believe. His aesthetic in, was like '70s sitcom. Anyway. I don't know that I believe that Adam Driver can be cool in the way that you're describing. Uh, <laughs> um, I think I think that's part of what excites me about this this project. As Archie well. Bunker, sorry. <laughs> um, right, Archie Bunker, but um. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm actually glad that Adam Driver in particular was not pushed to a cool place because I don't think that I'm ready for, for, for that place or for the misfire that I feel like is inevitable if, if, that's, if, if a genre's cool one. Adam Driver um, with his lovely ears and um, voice and manner, I, I, I just, I'm glad. Mm -hmm. um, I, th I think that's the biggest, the biggest kind of anti-cool 
um, element for me is actually is just Adam, um, <laughs> frankly, in the good in, in, the, in the best possible, most complimentary sense. Mm -hmm. Just if you look at all the vintage things in the film, and sure. you know every detail to it, which is, which I like. I mean, he, he, he put a lot of effort into the art design, the details of things. But also, I mean, I'm from Philadelphia. I've spent a lot of time in New Jersey Transit. And I'm sorry. Most <laughs> people who drive New Jersey Transit also have very thick accents, very thick New Jersey accents, yes. which is just a, a minor bone to pick, too. But Well, I mean, one thing I'll say, though, not to obsess over this, Cool thing, but I do think that it is incredibly well art designed, and there are vintage objects. But I do think that those objects are attached to those characters, and I do think that at other times, my sense of Jarmish, he sometimes seems to be writing characters into which he can put things that he finds cool, rather than yes, it's kind of vintage, yes, it's sort of affected, but it seems to be attached. It's coming from a character rather than coming from clearly Jarmish, where sometimes I feel like the degree of separation between Jarmish and what's in the film is minimal. And that can be fine. I often love those films, but this one seemed to well, have Well, also, this film, it's interesting that it's his band who did the music for it, which he doesn't often or ever do. I don't know. I, I think for Only Lovers Left Alive, I think it was also... See, I missed... I missed uh, that one. Well, but uh, you miss you miss when the vampires drive by uh, Jack Black's or Jack White's house. <laughs> Are you serious? I'm, I'm serious. They're like, oh. and then yeah. they put on another record. It's I very mean, cool. I we're talking we're talking about the Jim Rockers and cool stuff or too much cool. I mean, it's interesting that they had the idea of cool just with also. I mean, Jarmers seems to have been amassing like a catalog of international hipsterdom, you yeah. know, across the '80s and and and, and you know and '90s. And so to think, and the, the last movie was about like two, uh, you know, immortal hipsters who are just forever in lament mode about the decline of the world around them. Well, yeah. one was, and that's actually kind well, of what's interesting in that movie is that one is in lament, the other one's sort of not. But. That's true. No, yes, yeah. absolutely. That's, yeah. Um, so, but it's, it's interesting to think of the hip versus the cool. And then that's where Adam Driver kind of comes in in an interesting way just by virtue you know, past roles he's had, because in past roles he has been kind of, like, as in Girls, he's like a kind of represented a certain type, or has been a certain, I haven't, certain type of like, you know, awkward hip, hipster mode. Um, and then, you know, in Star Wars. Star, well, yeah. <laughs> what is cooler than pure evil? Um, <laughs> but I don't know. So that was just another thing that was kind of at play for me of him playing this character who's very earnest, uh, you know, but, but also, sort of bemused by, by his, his, uh, his wife, which is a whole other possible issue in the movie, but I don't know, is it? <laughs> I've heard dissent, I've heard dissent. women dissent against, I haven't seen it, but I know plenty of women who are like, all she does is just wait at home for him and yeah. make cupcakes, blah. Yeah. I think you summarized the dissent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Imagine John Lurie in that, it would be very, very well, different oh if John Lurie was in that instead of Adam Driver. If to John Lurie was the girlfriend. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. I would like to see that. <laughs> Jim, if you're listening, we just gave you a $10 idea. <laughs> right. Well, I think they're, they're going to need to use the room. That's a great, always good to start with a strong, end with a strong idea. So thank you all, all of you for coming. Thank you. Thank you. been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Oatmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. 
Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.